0: Guys, we're in the middle of a pandemic, and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Sign up today, go to BetterHelp.com backslash SolvingHealthcare and get 10% off sign-up fees. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Cordial Karamantang. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Quadcast Nation, it is with absolute pleasure that we have Julie Drury on the show. And let me know if I got this right, Julie. Strategic lead patient partnership with C. FHI, am I getting that I on point?
1: You're getting that right. Yeah. Amazing. Canadian Foundation for Healthcare Improvement.
0: Yeah. Yes, amazing. And you've been busy. Is that fair to say, Julie?
1: Yeah, I think our entire organization has been busy. Anybody who's involved in healthcare delivery or healthcare system or quality improvement <laughs> these days has been really busy.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. So yeah, that that would probably be an accurate statement. Busy. Yeah.
0: I I, I definitely hear you. So maybe tell us a bit about your journey to your position, what life has been like of late in terms of all you've had to do for advocating for patients and the lived experience and so forth. Yeah. Just walk us through how, how you got to where you are.
1: Yeah. So thanks for inviting me to have this conversation. I'm a fan. So I've been listening to your Uh, podcast and love the people that you've been interviewing so far. Um, And really happy that you're bringing someone on who sort of is an an advocate and an advisor and a partner in this lived experience space. Um, So, I I came to this role um, a number of different ways. Uh, My background is in human kinetics and exercise physiology, and I've worked in health policy now for well over two decades federally. So, I'm actually a public servant with Health Canada, and I'm on an interchange right now to develop this strategic leadership role at the Canadian Foundation for Healthcare Improvement. And I've come to that because of my own personal lived experience with, um, you know, significant um, interaction with the healthcare system with my daughter, Kate. So Kate passed away five years ago, as I was telling you. Um, Her birthday was actually on Thanksgiving, October 11th. Oh my God. And um, Kate had a rare form of mitochondrial disease that wasn't diagnosed until she was about four and a half through genetic exome sequencing. Uh, She was quite unwell with multiple sort of um, organ um, issues. She had some developmental delay and she gradually lost her hearing. So she became profoundly deaf over the first few years of her life. Um, Lots of interactions with the healthcare system, ICU admissions, inpatient. Um, She was taken care um, by CHEO at SickKids at St. Justin in Montreal, by the Mayo Clinic in the States, and also in England. Uh, The National Health System in England also intervened in her care. Um, She has the reputation of being the first person in the world diagnosed with TRNT1 deficiency, uh, or SIFD, which is her rare form of mitochondrial disease. Um, I now actually um, coordinate a, a family group of persons from across the world. Um, in the UK, in Europe, in the States, in Canada, um, who have loved ones affected by this condition. Um, And Kate's genetic material actually is at both CHEO and at Carleton University being studied in yeast models and mouse models to better understand this condition. So she was a real trailblazer in her life. uh, And she passed away following a failed bone marrow transplant um, to help to um, not cure her condition, but to help to mitigate some of the symptoms and her 10 year old brother was her donor at the time. Um, and she passed away from complications related to graft versus host disease. I'm telling you all this because I want to position the amount of, and you can probably tell as a physician, the amount of experience that I've had with the healthcare system. Mm. Literally hundreds of doctors and nurses, hundreds involved in Kate's care. And that's just the, the specialists and the nurses. I'm not you know, mentioning sort of any clerks that we've had um, to work with or porters or or hospital leadership, or quality improvement teams, or patient safety teams. Um, And so, you know, I I bridged, I started to bridge that experience fairly um, soon in Kate's journey into advising on patient and family advisory councils and getting involved with healthcare organizations to talk about lived experience, how patients were experiencing the healthcare system and families, and what could be better. And so I've had the privilege to work with many hospitals, many healthcare organizations. Um, I was the inaugural chair of the Minister's Patient and Family Advisory Council, uh, appointed by Minister Hoskins at the time, and, and also worked with Minister Elliott quite closely. Um, I work with a number of different organizations, including the Canadian Medical Association, the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons, and, and other sort of national organizations, to talk about meaningful and authentic engagement. Um, with persons who have lived experience across the healthcare system to 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 shift how our healthcare is delivered and to talk about policy and practice and um, and to, to really truly um, bring us to a point where we have a patient, not just patient-centered healthcare system, but a patient-partnered healthcare system.
0: Wow, wow! Like first of all, hearing about Kate, you know, as a as a parent, I. I just I just can't imagine like I just I can't imagine and I'm really sorry for the experience and and having to lose Kate and I hope your family I wish the best for your family in terms of all that you've had to go through already um you must be don't take this wrong way ultra knowledgeable when it comes to the way the the system works from at all levels of the healthcare system, and was there like some key themes that you saw where it was clear we needed to to do better, whether that's through communication, whether that's through, um, you know, um, just what we put our patients through. Because you know, one thing that I've learned from doing the the show in a short period of time is there's a lot to learn from the patient experience, from the lived experience. There's tons. There's thing, There's angles that we don't appreciate as as a s a, a clinician. So was there key themes that you have noticed over the years, Julie?
1: Yeah, well I'm glad that you mentioned the word communication. Um, if you follow the patient ombudsman, our new patient ombudsman, Kathy Fuchs now in Ontario, um, and our previous patient ombudsman, who happens to be now our Minister of Health, uh, Christine Elliott, um, when you read the reports from the patient ombudsman in Ontario over the years, 95 plus percent of patient complaints or poor patient experience come from breakdown in communication. Over 95%. And so, you know, I think there are many things that are contributing to that. I think that um, we've got still an extremely hierarchical healthcare system and you're probably experiencing that as a physician as well. I mean, it's the way that you're trained. The system is very hierarchical and we tend to historically do two patients or four patients and less of doing with and in collaboration. And we're moving into some of those better practices. We talk about shared decision making and there's better mentoring and better coaching. Um, But when push comes to shove, and when we get into crises, COVID is a great example, we tend to get right back into an overly medicalized hierarchical healthcare system. Um, So I think the system itself is not structured to be patient-centered or patient-partnered. You know, I'll give you a really clear example. Transitions in care. Wow, uh, from yeah. hospital to home. And, and you know this as a physician, I'm sure you've experienced it on behalf of your patients. Uh, it's just next to impossible to navigate and coordinate that. And to be truthful, the responsibility falls on the shoulder oftentimes of the patient themselves or a family member. Um, but we've made it near impossible to coordinate that effectively. Uh, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll share an anecdote. At the end of Kate's life, when we knew that she was dying and she was going to pass away, we decided to bring her home from Montreal and back to Ottawa. Mm-hmm. And we decided not to admit her into hospital at Chio because she was dying. and We wanted her at home. But to coordinate that was a Herculean effort. We could not get home care in place because she was coming home on a Saturday. Well, home care only operates Monday to Friday, 9 to 5. We couldn't get proper ma- pain medication, again, because the home care nurse wasn't deployed in the appropriate amount of time. Um, we had significant challenges and, and uh, it required a significant amount of advocacy on my part to get the child home. And, you know, that's just one example of a, of a poor experiences, but you know, there, there are, there are many, many, I would challenge anyone to find me an example of a, a a completely efficient, effective and patient centered transition in care. And again, it's simply how the healthcare system is set up. And so to your point, Bringing in lived experience, one of the tools that we use in, in, in patient engagement partnership is what we call experience journey mapping. Bringing in that lived experience and going through the patient journey and recognizing uh, or, or comparing the lived experience to the structures and the policies and processes we have in place and understanding the challenges and barriers, not just from a systems perspective, but from that lived experience perspective, that is the sweet spot right now that we're missing in the system. It's starting to come we're getting patient and family advisory councils in place and we're getting patient leaders like myself in place. And, you know, we're, we're helping to, to, you know, create what we call engagement capable environments, but it's still few and far between.
0: Wow. And yeah, I, I just, I think it's so vital and I, and I appreciate the fact that this is, we're seeing more of this, but we need that advocacy when it comes to, decision-making at all levels. Like, I, 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 I'm i like I'm, I'm convinced of this. It's too important. When you realize, like, I, I don't, re- like, with that story of Kate, like, put yourself, those that are listening, like, put yourself there. You have a dying child that you want to bring home, and you got to waste this freaking energy and, and bandwidth on the logistics of getting home. Like, this is Canada. We should figure this out, man. Like, we should really be able to say, you know, when it comes to, especially, I mean, I'm a palliative care doc, so I have a soft spot for end-of-life care. Like, we got to figure a way to make this happen. You You know what I'm saying? And that's why I think, you know, when it comes to major policy, when it comes to decisions, when it comes to research, when it comes to infrastructure in the hospital, you know, our patients and their families need a voice. They need to be advocated for. Because, and the other thing, too, is like, some of the best ideas often come from these conversations like i mean i don't i don't know if you have an anecdote off the top of your head but just sometimes the and it's, sometimes it's just a little thing like um i, I remember a colleague of mine they actually i might be i don't want to say the hospital in case i'm getting it wrong but they even had like we're s- setting up like patient and family navigators where they were you know, like, really, because, I mean, if you got a new diagnosis of cancer, you're trying to get go home when you got complex care needs, this is, it's not easy, as you you alluded to, Julie. Like, you need to be able to coordinate appointments. You need to make sure people are home at a specific time. Like, to me, like, this is what, um, it's, it's just so important. So, long-winded question. Have you seen any... Changes. Have you seen any solutions of late to either whether it comes to the communication, or whether it comes to transitions to care that that really make you optimistic about our future?
1: Absolutely. Um, you know, as I said before, this is the really the sweet spot right now—the unmined um, territory of of healthcare system transformation. So, you know, a, a couple of anecdotes. Um, you know, at the Kane Foundation for Healthcare Improvement, we've been working for the past 18 to 24 months on what we call a, a learning collaborative. And it's called Bridge to Home. And it's about transitions from hospital to home. And it's leading healthcare teams from across the country who apply to be part of our collaborative on how to improve that journey. And so, Uh, Shout out to a colleague of mine, uh, um, Shoshana Goldstein, who is at um, um, the uh, UHN Open Lab, uh, UHN in in Toronto University Health Network. And she developed something called PODS, Patient Oriented Discharge Summary. Um, This was developed, co-designed with patient, family, and caregivers. Um, it is a tool that ensures that it's not just the healthcare team to start discharging the patient, so to speak, um, it is the patient and the family caregiver, the essential care partner, not a visitor, but person who's essentially partnered in care. And we're going to talk about that a little bit, um, who helped to develop the transition plan together or the discharge plan together. And so there, everyone is fully informed and there is a plan of action that is well executed. Home care is brought in early. Family physicians uh, or or, or the the home physician is brought in early, and the patient and family are partnered in care. Just a clear example of just just adjusting it and fine tuning it and tweaking it so it it works. And we're proud that there's 24 to 26 hospitals and healthcare organizations that are working with us to spread and scale the use of that tool, co-designed by patient, family, and caregivers. You know, I'm I'm sharing quite a bit with you um, personally, which I don't often do anymore about Kate, but. I feel comfortable with you, so and and maybe I want to celebrate her a bit. Um, But Kate went through some very difficult times in the last few months of her life, and so did our family, that significantly impacted her safety and her care, very unfortunately. And uh, we went through um, a a year-and-a-half process with a hospital to talk about what happened to her, where the breakdowns in communication were, where the breakdowns in policy and hospital practice were, And that conversation, although very long and very difficult for my husband and myself to go through, resulted in 30 policy and program and practice changes at the hospital. And these were documented, they were shared with us, an action plan was was executed as part of their quality improvement initiative. Um, And I'm also proud to say that because of that very first interaction of bringing a family into a patient safety investigation, this is now more of a common practice at this hospital where they bring in the patient or the family member to talk about that harm situation or that patient safety situation. And they're part of the quality improvement agenda around this and, and, and the investigation or conversation, so to speak. And how that had not been happening prior to this is, is beyond me. I mean, I liken it to a car accident. How is it that you might have a collision at an intersection and you only go to speak to one occupant in one single vehicle? And you don't go and talk to the other about their side of the story and what they saw happened. And so we are seeing that shift and that change across the system. And it really has to do with um, leaders. And I and I give a shout out to some very strong leadership um, in, in hospitals across the country, not just here in Ontario, that understand that patient voice and lived experience, as you said, just cre- can create small change or uh, what I call the head tilt, like the oh, wait a yes. second, I hadn't yes. thought of it that way. I didn't see it that way. When I speak at conferences, uh, Quadro, one of the things I look for is the head tilt. And I'd I love to measure <laughs> that angle and actually, you know, sort of from a data point of view, see how many head tilts I can get or what the angle of the head tilt yeah. is because you create that aha moment.
0: Wow, I mean, can I just say, you know, I'm, we're all about like, this show's about transforming healthcare and promoting people that are doing that. Call it changing the boogie, and when you tell me that your meetings with the hospital engaged that was involved impacted thirty decisions thirty policies that is bettering the lives and the the experience of future patients that's what we call changing that boogie, and this is what it's all about like maybe put you on the spot. can you give an example of, of something that maybe was tweaked that you that uh, was uh, like a policy tweak that, um, that was implemented?
1: Yeah, sure. And I'll, I'll just be cautious because I don't want to identify the organization. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Kate was a, a, a stem cell transplant patient, but she wasn't oncological, right? She wasn't a cancer mm-hmm. patient. And so the way the hospital organized um, follow-up for these children and where they might be in crises, Uh, when they came into clinic, into that, that clinic where they were being managed was only the cancer kids or the oncological kids were put on the whiteboard as actually being present. And so when the physicians were picking up on who was present in clinic, they were only seeing the cancer kids. So Kate was in crisis. She was having, um, uh, 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 I know, an, an episode following her stem cell transplant. Stem cell transplant is not a very linear journey when you're recovering from it. And um, because she wasn't on this whiteboard and identified because she wasn't a cancer patient, she wasn't identified as actually being present in clinic. And this created a slippery slope of no one picking up on her care. So we Mm -hmm. had no physician attending to her because no one was assigned to her. So the simple tweak was all children who come into the clinic, whether be they cancer patients or not, are, are identified on that whiteboard and they're assigned a clinical lead, a physician lead beautiful it's small and it's yeah. simple but quite frankly um that saves lives mm-hmm. that changes uh harm that changes you know what happened to Kate is she got into a very um critical situation quite quickly because no one was following her and it wasn't until she was in crisis that someone was like oh crap we better go to check on the kid in room 1
0: mm-hmm. yeah it, and um and i mean the other thing that i, I, I like about what you were doing is and like advocating for like if there's incidences to have the family involved because it also, I don't, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, and but it also like this sounds insensitive. I don't know how to say this in a sensitive way. It's like, you, there's at least some purpose out of the experience. You know what I mean? Like th- there was um, I'm trying to say that there was an ability for us to learn and, 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 do better for future patients and and the other thing too is and not to be too repetitive but that perspective that really adding that perspective piece like it's a good analogy you make like if you're in a car accident you only get talked to one eyewitness or whatever one person involved like you might be missing something that can't run out Did the you know was that speed truly 60 kilometers an hour as they're claiming so it's just you know adding that extra piece um I guess what I was trying to say it might add assist with the closure when something happened, a negative experience happened that you know there was at least some learning that happened along with it. Sorry, I'm fumbling there. I just I really don't want to sound insensitive. Um, You're not
1: at all, and I have a pretty thick skin, right? I'm I'm in this space a lot, so so right. please don't apologize. Um, right. I think there's a couple of things there that I want to unpack. So certainly closure is part of it, and I think that's incredibly important um, as a comment. That um, we, as a healthcare system, and I'm going to say we, because patients are part of this as well, tend to circle the wagons when harm occurs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a lot of work to be done there about, you know, sort of no fault, transparency, um, coming up with apology early, um, and, and, you know, quite frankly, of, you know, getting, getting in front of things early before we get into sort of litigious or, or legal issues. And that's just not how we're structured right now a complaint comes forward, a patient safety incident comes forward. And as soon as it's reported, the wagons circle. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult for patients and families to get closure. And we see that on repeat across this country. I don't have to give you examples. I'm sure your listeners know them well. I think the other thing for our family, and, and recall, like we, we lost Kate at this point, right? This wasn't during her life. This was after her death. Was And, and, and um, we were angry. We were very upset. And we were very angry and we wanted to change something. We wanted to change something for Kate, even Mm. though she was already gone. We wanted to change something for her because what happened to her wasn't right. And the reason I'm sharing that quadro is it's very important. We we tend to, as a system, get really concerned when a patient or family caregiver is angry. Oh, geez, they're angry. Like we can't go there. Uh, Let's put them through the patient relations, patient experience office, kind of set them aside, push them over there. We can still engage and partner when people are angry. Um, I still carry a little bit of anger with me. I carry a lot of guilt and and shame and grief as well. And those are complicated human emotions, but it doesn't mean that I can't do my job and that I can't advise and advocate and partner. Uh, And so finding, you know, um, the the, the ways to work with families, even in a time when, you know, they, they have met with crises and they might be angry. And I think the way we currently structure with all due respect to those people who lead in patient relations and patient experience, I think the way we currently structure that does a real disservice to our healthcare teams and to our patients and families. Um, we expect them to come to meetings if, if they're going to be held at the hospital, Monday to Friday, nine to five, where their trauma might've occurred. Mm. Uh, we expect them to meet with teams that are of the hospital where the harm might have occurred rather than maybe meeting with a neutral mediator or a neutral part, third party. Uh, we tend to not share information transparently um we tend to value the chart and the information of the medical and healthcare team over the experience of the family to your point um and so i think those are some of the you know the current barriers to to understanding that patient safety patient harm patient complaint can actually illustrate some really great opportunities for change in the system but we've got to rethink how we've designed that um and and keep everybody safe not just the patients and families who've experienced harm but the physicians as well and the healthcare teams as well um and we don't do a great we great job of it you know i will say that um when we went through this experience it was very traumatizing we walked into a neutral space that i had advocated for that was outside the hospital into a room where literally on the wall were these massive printed charts that they called swim lanes and it was a timeline with every single team who had touched and or been involved in Kate's care. Um, and it outlined the last two weeks of her life where the harm had occurred. And then the expectation was, okay, we were going to add in our narrative to that. And it was all based on the chart. Um, and so important to do, <laughs> but really hard for us to my husband and I to walk in cold into that room and to see that there'll be the last two weeks of my daughter's life documented on these walls. And so, Patients and families can help to design that process. You know, I've offered feedback to the hospital that what could change here? How could this process be different? How could I feel more safe and more partnered in this? Um, and all this to say is that there's a richness and a value of information there. It's it's about closure for the family, but it's about shifting the system as well.
0: My God. I, I, I'm I'm just uh, hearing you speak, Julia, it's just, uh, you know, it's not only inspirational, like i i I'm motivated to do more to learn more uh to really give that avenue for our, our patients and their families to express their experience but just also i'm i'm in in i'm in awe of how courageous you guys have been how like the thing that with when, when it comes to something like this is that you know speaking to it now like i i mean we're on zoom but I could see it in your eyes like this is not easy whenever you have to go back and think about what you went through that lived experience and you guys you and your husband being courageous and and, and being the being those advocates being the, the leaders that that are going to help so many people and you know it, it's funny because you telling me that story about the charts on the wall I I'm, I'm being a hundred percent honest with you I would have never registered that as being potentially traumatic Never in my life, like you know you like I didn't do it there because i am not I'm like not cognizant, but head tilt like my head would have been like the degree of tilt oh. would have been yeah like you know like when you throwing down that uh that that uh information it's it, like it makes sense as you say, it but I would never have pieced that together, and so um i I think what you're doing is just it's it's magical um. If it's okay with you, I I want to speak about the, what's going on with COVID because oh yeah, <laughs> my God, you know, as as a as a guy that has seen firsthand what the experience has been like for patients and families, especially early in in the pandemic, it it melted my heart seeing people die alone, seeing the inability of people to see their loved ones at the end of life. I oh. It, it was just straight up nasty. Um, you must be busy now regarding the pandemic. I, I, I don't even know where to start, Julie. Like, What have you been involved with or hearing about uh, in terms of patients' lived experience or families' lived experience when it comes to the, our pandemic?
1: Yeah. So because I'm out there publicly and because I've been doing this for so long, you know, one of the roles that I I tend to play that is um, deeply personal to me is I, I, I advise families a lot. And so just as recently as yesterday evening, um, uh, a colleague connected me with um, a wife whose husband is going through um, a significant cancer journey, um, multiple rounds of chemo, and and has now come through a stem cell transplant. And started in February, but as of March, mid-March, as you know, um, she was no longer able to participate, partner in his care or be there to support him. And so she's reaching out to me now because this journey is continuing. Uh, and uh, we're going to have a conversation soon to talk about, you know, what what I would advise her to do to be able to reintegrate her role as an essential care partner. So that segues me into what am I doing now? So we, you know, our organization, um, it was very much about um, championing the role of family caregivers uh, from an open family presence policy point of view. So for the past five to six years, we've worked across the country with Um, The major hospitals, 131 hospitals across the country, like the the largest hospitals in in Canada, to re-examine this whole thing around visitors and visiting hours and to start to talk about what would it look like to have open family presence policies and to welcome families as part of healthcare teams and to talk about what partnership and care look like, not just for the patient, but for family caregivers. And so over the course of five years of, a, of an initiative that we called Better Together, uh, where we had all these major hospitals sign on board, as well as some of the leading healthcare organizations, we advanced um, open family presence policies from approximately 35% across the country to 73%. So that that means that 73% of hospitals pre-COVID had relatively flexible policies where families could be present really whenever they chose to on a 24 seven clock. And that was supported. And that was part of the practice of that healthcare organization. And then COVID hit and overnight, all of a sudden everyone became a visitor. Um, and we did not differentiate in terminology between what is a visitor, which is a social visit and, and important. Um, and what is an essential care partner, a family caregiver who partners in care, provides emotional, psychological, physical support, offers continuity of care, um, patient history, and, and supports care coordination. Um, and I'm being very clear about this, Quadro, because this is based in the literature. This is in, based in research and evidence, the impact that family caregivers have as care partners. patient experience, but also patient safety and patient outcome. Patients have better outcome when their essential care partner, be it a family member, a trusted friend, it might be um, a substitute decision maker, um, but identified by the patient as that that essential care partner is present, their outcome is better. They are safer in the healthcare system. And in mid-March, we locked them out. Now, why did we lock them out? Well, because COVID and we were all freaking out. How does this thing get transmitted? What are the risks here? We don't have enough PPE. Are we all wearing you know, gowns, gloves, masks, shields, and the whole nine yards? What's the most effective thing? And so in early days, of the pandemic, absolutely. We got to kind of get our footing here and figure this out. But we are now close to nine months in and many hospitals um, are still uh, restricting visitors. So the guidance and directive has come from ministries of health and and chief medical officers of health. Um, and some of them are shifting, you know, uh, we've seen shifts in BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan and their terminology, they're differentiating between a visitor and an essential care partner. We're seeing shifts in some of the terminology here in Ontario as well. We're seeing some hospital leadership where they're like, okay, we know we need caregivers back because they are essential. They're not only, we're not only risking patient safety, but we're seeing moral distress amongst our healthcare providers. They're watching people die alone or they're watching people go through extremely challenging healthcare journeys without a, without a family caregiver present and there to help navigate. Um, and, and that's not anecdotal. This is, again, bearing itself out in, in some of the early research that we're seeing around the pandemic. Um, and so they're starting to put together sort of training programs or education or knowledge programs for family caregivers to help them understand IPAC, infection prevention and control procedures, masking, physical distancing, hand washing, just so that they're prepared to be in a hospital COVID environment. And also that staff are reassured that, okay, that caregiver, they, they need to be here. They've got, they've got some training and some knowledge about you know what it is to be in a COVID environment. And okay, we're more comfortable with them being here. And so we're seeing that um, organizations like perth uh, Puron Health, Alli- uh, uh, Herth- uh, Health Alliance, perth Huron, sorry, perth Huron Health Alliance, Janice Kepper, the CEO of Hotel Geograss Hospital, uh, Kevin Smith at UHN. We're seeing some great leadership of bringing back family caregiver presence. We're also seeing significant gaps still where visitors uh, are restricted, family caregivers are restricted. And uh, so a big part of my policy work over the past six months has been um, the release of a document in June called the reintegration of family caregivers in a time of COVID-19 hashtag more than a visitor. And over the past five months, we've conducted a series of policy labs with expert advisors from all sectors of the healthcare system. Um, And we'll be releasing that report, we hope in about a week or two. Um, And it'll be very much um, policy guidance about how to bring back family caregivers. And then, um, Slowly releasing resources, tools in the forms of of webinars, um, caregiver ID programs, learning collaboratives, coaching and mentoring from myself and our team at CFHI to support organizations to bring back family caregivers. But I can't be adamant enough that for me, this is deeply personal. I'm hearing about this every single day um, from patients and families. And the harm that's occurring um, is, in my opinion, exponential. And we have to balance it with a risk approach. And I don't think right now we've struck
0: that balance. Not even close. Like if we think about, like we learned so much in over the last few months, we know that our personal protective equipment works. We're not seeing a spike in, in in healthcare providers that are engaged in COVID patients getting sick. You know, like we know that stuff works. We know how important it is to have um, loved ones at the, at the, advocating for their patients and or for their loved ones and, and being at their bedside. And, uh, especially like, you know, where I like personally, when I find it the most value, especially when patients have chronic disease, like I can't count how many times where, you know, I'll see somebody that has a, you know, for example, their chronic respiratory problem and they've had it from a young age. And, you know, I look at the patient and I'm thinking we need to do X Family members expresses, you know, this is normal. They'll do this for a few hours and they'll get better. They'll be like, thank you. Okay, we'll sit tight. Avoid every in- intervention that I was about to order um, because of they know that th- th- their loved one, they know what they ex- how they respond. They know, you know, what I see as agitation. They actually see it as pain. And so, you know, instead of giving something for agitation, you give something for pain. Like it's so important. And we all want the same thing. And so, what COVID just destroyed was to, to be able to have that advocacy. And it also, you know, and once again, the, the, when it came to end of life, it was just, it's no one deserves to die alone, as far as I'm concerned. Um, yeah. No one at all. And um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I, it's one of the things that I'm extremely, I don't know if the term is anxious or sad about, Julie, is just how, it's, in some ways, we, in, when it comes to COVID, we've been really nimble in terms of adjusting to the new information, you know, what, what PPE is involved, what have, and what treatments we need, and so forth. But this seems to have not trickled down quick enough you know, when it comes to, you know, having uh, loved ones at the bedside. It, it's just, I don't know what the the fears are. Like, I know what the fears are, but are they based on 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 not reality but on so, on something valid I, you know like i i don't know what it, i don't know what we need to do to be able to push this forward
1: i i think what you're asking is is the risk real is the risk of transmission from a family caregiver to a patient or a family caregiver to staff or to other people in the hospital real Mm -hmm. Um, And so we're working on that right now. We're working with, with uh, CADET, the Canadian Association for Drugs and Technology in in Health, um, who can drive this, this um, evidence base for us. Um, But we're hearing anecdotally um, that it's, it it is fear based policy. Um, To your point, we know the effective measures to control transmission of COVID we can educate family caregivers and, and help them to adhere to these practices. I mean, when they don't adhere, then, yeah, they probably shouldn't be there. Yeah. Um, but, but I would say for the most part, family caregivers, you know, they can adapt pretty quickly and they understand the hospital environment pretty quickly if they've been there for a while. Uh, and so I think, you know, you talked about it hasn't trickled down. Uh, my argument is it hasn't trickled up. Um, mm. It's got to trickle up to hospital leadership, to the people who are the policy developers and decision makers, and, and quite frankly, to our, to our governments. Mm -hmm. And again, not just Ontario, but across the country. Um, You know, I I have great um, respect for for two um, of your colleagues who work in geriatrics, Dr. Nathan Stahl and Dr. Samir Sinha. And they have been incredible advocates in the long-term care sector where we've seen just unbelievable harm. And we know that in long-term care, 30 to 35% of care is delivered by family caregivers. Feeding, um, toileting, bathing, hygiene. Um, you know, managing bed sores, hydration, um, ambulation and getting people to move around, getting them to actually do their exercise and their therapy, emotional and, and psychological and, and, and um, you know, stimulation. Um, and locking out those family caregivers has created exponential collateral damage to COVID. There is no doubt. The evidence is clear. Andre Picard just wrote a book about it. I don't know how he pulled that off in the middle of a pandemic, but he did because he's Andre.
0: Yeah, I saw Um,
1: that. (laughs) Like, what the heck? Um, But but what I'm getting at is that um, what is the risk of locking out the family caregivers as opposed to the risk of letting them back in? We do not have any clarity that they are an additional risk of transmission. In fact, it's staff that are Mm -hmm. transmitting for many reasons uh and and um you know i would i, I would agree with you like that the 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 argument for having them there from a patient safety and patient outcome and experience point of view um is more valid than fear based policy of risk of transmission but this is where we get into what i call covid as political kryptonite nobody <laughs> wants a damn outbreak in their hospital
0: yeah it's a it's a tough spot for administrators but i, I the, the my biggest concern with, in general, with, with our approach to COVID is a lot of it is fear-based, the fear, fear to make the wrong decision. And, you know, I, I think we, we do, we, do, I mean, there's a lot of unknown you got to be able to accept the fact that there, there's risks in our decisions, but there's also risk of inaction, you know? And I think that, that somehow falls through the crack by, by us not doing something you know, after a decision's made, that still could be harmful. And um so I I think um yeah, it's 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 a really it's tough going through this. It's tough seeing the families going through this. It's tough seeing our patients go through this. They you know, I we got a neighbor that's got a loved one in a uh, nursing home and and, you know, them having to back in the summer going to get tested every week or two. I forget what it was back then. Um limited visits and and you know their loved one is very near end of life is in in their 90s and so forth and you think about you know what even what it would, it would be like as a 90 some year old in your your end stage of your life and not being able to connect with your your loved ones i like guess is tragic it really is tragic
1: well, and we know in the long-term care sector as well that when a person enters long-term care, and you would know this as a physician, that typically they're there for two years, right, mm-hmm. max. Like that's usually the longevity. So my question around these policies is, what are we saving? What are we protecting them
0: from? You, you, you know, what I love about that, it's, been, it's so taboo to talk about it, but it's, it's, it's real, it is real. Like, I mean, I, I often give numbers less than two years, but um, I guess it d- depends on your source. But a, a lot of people, we did some studies on lo- long-term care and the outcomes of when they come to our intensive care unit. But yeah, the prognosis, once you walk in the door of a long-term care facility, is very poor. And uh, I think that gets lost in the, in the conversation uh, when it comes to, uh, when it comes to COVID.
1: You know, it's interesting. There was a survey done recently and I, I apologize because I cannot remember the source, but it was talking to boomers. So our aging population that are soon going to be our you know, our seniors who are going to need that, that level of, of potential care. <laughs> the quote was 100% are saying that they want to age in place. They want to age at home. My parents included who were in their late seventies, right? My dad was like, don't put me in a home, whatever you do. And I'm kind of laughing about it because like this massive pivot in, in you know, people's perceptions of long term care and, and the safety of it. But I think we're all as a society seeing um, the harm that's occurring. And I think we're questioning, you know, are, are we support are we keeping them safe from COVID or are we causing much more significant collateral damage in a different way? Mm-hmm. Um and you know I I I know I know you're not in the long-term care sector and and neither am I really although our organization is very much supporting uh long-term care to help them sort of pivot in this time of covid and 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 supporting them with different resources and tools um but but I, we're we're all one system. And this is a thing that sometimes I think we fail to recognize as individuals in the system, but as a, a system isn't in its entirety. As you know, I think Ottawa Hospital is at 99% capacity right now. A big part of it is ALC. Um, and ALC are those people who really don't belong in hospital, but you can't bring the, put them into long-term care because there's an outbreak in the home Mm -hmm. or there's not enough beds or we don't Mm -hmm. have enough beds where they're out of like, you know, three to four person environments. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the system as a whole um, you know, is, is, is not set up in a way that there is that efficiency. Uh, You know, another topic that we haven't touched on is home care. Home care got decimated in a time of COVID. Mm -hmm. Uh, We, we, we cut back significantly on the resources dedicated to home care on therapies, on nursing hours. Um, You know, I'm very connected still to the, you know, pediatric medically complex community. I can tell you, you know, close friend who used to have seven nights of nursing because she's got a medically complex child who's got, um, you know, intractable seizures. She's now got five nights of nursing. So what does that mean? It means her and her husband share the one night that someone has to stay up 24 hours and they have to stay awake. He needs constant monitoring. Let me be really clear. Um, This is also a child who can't attend school because of risk of of contracting COVID. So because he's not in school, no physio, no occupational therapy, no speech therapy, um, none of it because it's all delivered in school. And we don't transition that to home care. His nursing hours where his mom might have gotten gotten respite when he was in school, those nursing hours are also withdrawn because they're only school-based and they're not home-based. So we have major challenges with how we structure the system. To, to support um, patients and families and COVID has exacerbated that beyond measure.
0: Wow. No, I, I mean, I, I just finished an interview and uh, I was saying how like COVID really puts a lens on where our gaps are. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, and, you know, I've been trying to preach this as much as I can. Like there's a lot of areas that if we were smarter about investing in would have in my opinion, exponential impact, like, as you mentioned, home care, when you could prevent somebody from walking in our doors in the emergency department, in an ICU, because of the, having that, the level of support, like that's an investment as far as I'm mm-hmm. concerned. Yeah. Okay. And, and as much time as people could be at home, especially with the complex needs, the better. And so yeah. um, I, completely hear you where, when it comes to these things. And, and it, I mean, and also I want to say it also, uh, you wonder how much of that lack of home care right now is exacerbating the ALC problem. Um, mm. You know, I, it's tough to know if, you know, a lot of these patients I think truly belong in long-term care, but if they did have that added level of care at home, potentially some of these patients could be still at home. Oh, Wow. It it really it truly has put a lens on where our deficits are in, in healthcare. Man, uh Julie, like I'm cognizant of the time, I know you are ultra busy and you got another meeting coming up here. It was a true pleasure. You are a l like a walking angel. The work that you you doing, the the way you have honored Kate and your family and impacted so many people's lives by the, the the special things that you're doing and 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 the courage i want to emphasize this to to everyone that's listening this is you have to you you have to have that gumption you have to have that drive and it's not easy every time we, she's having this conversation with someone like myself anytime she's walking into a, a pediatric hospital here, every time she's hearing a story from another family that you know, similar to experience that she may have experienced with Kate. Like this is, this is hard. And so I just want to truly commend you for the work you've done. And it's one of the most special shows that I, I must say I've had a chance to do. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time.
1: Like I said, I, I really appreciate the invitation. I could talk with you for hours. Um, and you know, I, I, I appreciate the call out to, um, you know, people who have lived experience, who do really get involved in the healthcare system and want to have these conversations. Um, I don't think I'm unique or, you know, I appreciate you calling me courageous. I think it's that I found a, a, a passion. I found a place where, um, I could honor Kate, but I could also honor what we live through what I personally live through and lockstep with my daughter, but also um, the background that I have, um, both academically and professionally in, in marrying up policy and, and seeing an opportunity to help shift the system. So, and I appreciate having these conversations, you know, it's leaders like yourself who, who are willing to kind of take the step and have these conversations and, and push the barriers a little bit and be a bit of a shift disruptor. Um, so, so kudos to you for starting this this uh, this podcast or this this webcast, and uh, for bringing the people that you're bringing in to have these hard conversations.
0: No, I really appreciate that. That means a lot coming from you. Um, but <laughs> thanks. thanks again, Julia. We need to and,
1: talk again.
0: Yeah, I think we'll be definitely doing that. <laughs> Thank you so much.
1: Okay, take care.
0: Quadcast Nation, tell me your heart didn't melt here, and Julie throw down about her kid, Kate about the advocacy that she's doing. This is a special human being and and doing great work during a difficult time. If you love the show, which I know you do, give us a five-star rating. Make sure to subscribe on wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave a comment at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. We're everywhere at Quadcast. You know, and we're going to continue to have these important conversations because we want to make sure our patients, loved ones, Delivery is improved in our country, and uh, it starts with these conversations, y'all. So, thanks so much for listening, and we'll connect again real soon. Peace.